Yeah, I can't possibly uh, add anything that the uh, Reverend Mr. T hadn't already said about mothers. So if it's cool with y'all, we're going to stick to the Bible for the rest of the day. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I guess I've got to do what Matt normally does when he's here. Um, and uh, just kind of go into, uh, you know, who we are at the Valley, why we do what we do, and uh, why the Valley exists. And so we're driven by uh, four principles, and that's to, to live, learn, serve here, go there. Uh, Twelve? You couldn't be more than five. You're so fat, they have to jack you up to take off your shoes. Yeah, well, you're so skinny, your eyes are in single file. Well, just you're so ugly, your ears... That works. So that was the spirit moving. If you ever heard people talk about that, apparently we need to talk about mom more. Um, yeah, so we live here, live in community with one another, come to know each other. We're going to really dive into some of that today. Uh, that's actually going to build into a lot of uh, the passage that we're going to look at about learning, kind of seeing what that means, what, uh, who Christ would have us to be serving here, um, you know, going out in Valonia amongst our neighbors, amongst our friends, and importantly amongst each other. And then going there, taking that message out, you know, that fact that we serve one another here uh, intimately, we know each other well, we're here to take care of each other, but we also take that message out into the world, uh, starting in Valonia, moving out into Arkansas and going on there. Um, so that's, that's the valley, that's who we are, that's why we're here, and today uh, we'll kind of uh, build on that through the, uh, through the words of our Lord Jesus. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to John chapter 17. Give y'all a couple minutes to get there. I have a version. Uh, I prefer the uh, New English translation. Uh, John chapter 17. Starting in uh, verse 20. I'm not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I have made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. All right, so the first thing uh, that I like to do, um, I'll go ahead and let you know up front, my, my preaching style is a little bit different than Matt's. I'm uh, <laughs> maybe not quite as conversational. Uh, so I like to just kind of uh, take a look at the text, work through it verse by verse. So we'll uh, just kind of give a real quick breakdown. It'll be a pretty quick sermon today, and we'll all get out of here to go see uh, families and moms and everything. Um, so what, uh, what we pick up with here, first thing that we'll do is just, like I say, read through the text. We'll kind of go through the context, get a feeling for where this passage sits in the greater text and then what it means to us today. Um, so starting off in verse 20, we see that, uh, uh, Jesus is continuing a prayer and we'll get more into that later. 
And uh, uh, the first thing he does in verse 20 is he names who he's praying for. In this case, it's us. It's the church. Uh, this is, uh, we are the ones uh, who he's praying for. We're the legacy of the disciples' faithfulness to the gospel. Uh, the people he's praying for are not the disciples who are over his shoulder while this is going on, but the people who will come to believe in Jesus thanks to the work of those disciples. Uh, moving on into verse 21, after Jesus has kind of identified who he prays for, um, he, we see what he prays about concerning us. And it breaks down into two big things. There's, uh, there's tons of nuance here. There's a lot going on. But the two big elements are unity and mission. Uh, and you'll see that there's a lot, as always in John's gospel, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of back and forth because John wants us to understand that these themes, these things that he introduces, don't stand on their own that they work with one another, and sometimes it's hard to draw the line where one ends and one begins, but that they're all part of one greater gospel whole. So we see in unity that, uh, you know, for instance, he prays the, you know, that we would have, uh, uh, there's basically, you know, there's two big types of unity, unity with one another in verse 21, uh, that they will be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in, and I am with you, or I am in you. But then there's also in verse 21, uh, unity between us and God, between us and Christ himself, that they will be in us. So Christ equates unity with believers horizontally across believers of the church. To Christ, it's every bit as important as our unity with God himself, uh, that these are not two things that can be divorced, that we are here to love one another, to serve with one another, every bit as much as we're here to love God and serve God, and indeed that we love and serve God by loving and serving one another. And then um, also in verse 21, there's this idea of mission. We see the reason for this unity. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not just something that has to happen to check off a box, but that with this unity, there's a goal, and that's our mission as the church. That they would be one so that the world will believe you sent me. That Christian unity is directly tied into our mission as Christians and to what God has called us to do. And so unity is even part of that mission, right? Because that's an act. It's hard to, <laughs> to be united. It's hard to, to stick together all the time. But that's one, of the thing that's, that's, that's one of the things that God has called us to do. And without that unity, that that greater mission falls apart. And in the eyes of Jesus, it's probably not possible. Um, so then we move on into verse 22, and we see uh, where, this, uh, where Christian unity kind of starts to get separated from, again, from unity for unity's sake. What, uh, what creates this unity? Well, according to verse 22, it's the glory of God himself. So this isn't something that's, that's shoved down our, our throats by force. Um, this is, uh, uh, it's bestowed upon us by Christ through the Holy Spirit. And this is not some superficial unity that we create. It's not kumbaya. This is the working of God in the people of God to transform us to be more like God. And we as Christians believe in a triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Three God and three persons, one God, three persons. So if we believe that part of what God has called us to do, part of what God is doing in us is making us more like God, then unity is inherently part of that. Because to be more, made more like God is to be made one with the people of God. Um, so we, we contrast this with, just to kind of put it into uh, some historical context, uh, the, uh, the people that that John's writing to would understand this, a concept of forced unity, right? These are people living under the Roman Empire. Not only are they living under the Roman Empire, they're living in a time that we uh, know now historically as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. This is uh, where one of the world's largest empire was able to maintain a period of peace within its borders uh, that is more or less not rivaled up until that point or after that point. 
the thing that we tend to gloss over whenever we talk about this peace of Rome is how that peace was achieved. And it was achieved through brutal, brutal government action and bloodshed. Basically, as soon as someone started to rise up and challenge the peace, Rome would send legions to crush them and kill them and put them away. And that's how they kept peace in the empire. This is not the kind of uh, unity and peace that God's calling for. He's not, this is, this is something, that, that's what human peace looks like. It's an action of the sword, right? We, we force coercion, we force unity, we force agreement uh, through acts of power, through acts of violence. Uh, but Christ goes out of his way here to, to explicitly say, no, no, this is coming from the glory of God himself. This is the work of God in us. This is a completely different kind of unity than the, uh, the Roman unity that John's audience would have known in that day. Um, so moving on into, uh, into verse 23, uh, again, John really likes to restate things. He likes to go back and revisit things. So we've got a restatement of unity. We've got a restatement of mission in verse 23. But the other thing we have, we do get a new wrinkle, and that's this parallel that Christ creates, where he uh, creates this parallel between seeing and believing. Right? So he says earlier he said that he wants us to be one so that the world would see us and know that Christ sent us the he wants us to be united uh, and in mission together so that the world sees us and knows Christ and comes to Christ. And he restates that here. So uh, we get this, Christ desires for us to be one just as he and the Father are one. Um, or Christ desires for us to be one so that the world may see us. Uh, so here Christ desires for us to be one just as he and the Father are one that the world would see us. And then he says that the Father has already loved us just as he's loved Christ. Um, so this, uh, moving into 24, so he's got that, this idea that we have unity just as he and the Father have unity, and that's paralleled with the fact that the Father loves us just as he's already loved Christ. There's a before and after going both ways here. And verse 24 is where we really move into a comparison and contrast kind of between this unity and mission and Christ's own statement about who he is. So Christ wants the world to see our unity so that they'll know him. In other words, they see us and united in Christian love, and they will believe. Christ wants us, he moves on in 24, to, be, uh, to join him in the completion of this mission. Uh, earlier, th- uh, this is where in John, if you scroll back a few verses, where John, he, Christ talks about going to prepare a place for us. He's about to move on. This is, this is his last act before he's arrested. This prayer, right after this prayer, you turn the page, he gets arrested and what we know is the crucifixion and the whole trial begins. Um, so uh, uh, Christ wants us to join him in the completion of that mission. He's about to go on. He's about to die on the cross and go on into glory and prepare a way for us to come there. So uh, uh, whereas the world will see us and then believe, he says in verse 24 that these people, these ones he's addressing, have believed and will soon see. So he wants the world to see us and believe, whereas we have already believed he wants us to see what's coming. There's a rising and falling. There's a parallel action there. Um, moving into verse 25, uh, Jesus makes it clear how the world uh, comes to see God. Um, it's, it's, of course, through Christ. Uh, the, uh, the phrase he uses is, even though the world does not know you, I know you. Um, and then through the actions of Christ, moving on, through the witness of the disciples. These men know that you have sent me. And then through their actions, the people that he's praying for, namely the people who will come to believe, come to exist through what the, what the disciples have done. Um, and then in verse 26, 
we see something that's it's really easy to miss, but it's crucially important that we don't. This is a, let me just read verse 26. Sorry, it's tough to do here all in one monitor. It's great when you get up in the morning and find out your printer's out of ink. Um, so verse 26, I have made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known so that you, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. So this closing verse, like I say, it's really easy to miss this, but it's crucially important that we don't because Jesus has just said just within a few verses that his work has been complete, that he's moving on, that he's going to go somewhere, and he wants his people to eventually be where he is. But then, just another verse or two later, he says, I have made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known. That seems to contradict what he just said. And why that's so important not to miss and what that means there's, is what Christ is saying there. It's that the work of Jesus, this is why our unity and mission is so important, that the work of Jesus continues through Jesus' body, the church. Um, this, is, this is why it's crucial to understanding what, not only what we're called to do, but what the church itself is, right? We can't be effective as the church if we don't understand what the church is. Now, John 17 is not the only place in the Bible you want to go to get your definition of what the church is. You miss a lot if you do that. But it's equally as important that we don't gloss over John 17, you know, that we don't just go turn the pages, look at the the other Gospels, look at what Paul says, look at Acts, stuff like that. We have to realize that these are the words of Christ about the church and that they are incredibly important to our understanding of what, who we are and what God God has called us to do. Um, So we, uh, basically what we see this then is that if, Jesus himself flat out states that I am continuing my work through the church. Then where there is no, and his desire for the church is that we would be united, uh, not only together, but also in mission. Then where there is no unity in mission, then there is no church. And where there is no church, there is no Christ. And that's, like I said, that's crucially important. We can't gloss over verse 26 when we read this passage. So now let's, uh, that's kind of gone through verse by verse there. We'll move on to context, get an idea for what's going on, what's happening here. Um, just in terms of uh, uh, the bigger context, this is uh, John 17 kind of stands on its own. It's uh, its own little, there's a big genre shift that happens in John. So John chapters 1 through 13 are these really cool uh, kind of action-packed stories. It's still John, so there's tons of theology crammed into them, and there's a lot of just teaching that goes into the words of Jesus and, and even the words of what John writes. Uh, but what's happening in, in John 1 through 13 are kind of what we see in the other Gospels. You know, there's stories about the life of Jesus, what he did. There's these big crowds involved. There's miracles. There's all sorts of stuff. And then uh, John's chapter uh, 14 through uh, 16 there's a big shift um, to where we go away from these big crowds. We go away from these big stories where Jesus is demonstrating things, and we shift down to where there's only a handful of men. He's basically with the, with the disciples and a few other faithful followers. Um, there's, not a, there's no more miracles. There's no big signs of power. He's just sitting down with the guys that he spent the last three years with, and there's this teaching and demonstration. This is where he washes their feet. This is the, uh, uh, the dialogue in the upper room. I'm the vine, you are the branches, lots of verses that we're familiar with where he's basically, he's preparing. Uh, he knows what's coming up. He knows he's about to be arrested, and, and uh, he knows his life's about to end. So he spends his last, uh, or not his last, but the, the near to the last things that he does on earth is spent preparing the disciples for what's about to come so that they can go on without him. Um, 
he's no longer moving about the countryside. John chapters uh, 1 through 16, you know, he's over in uh, Capernaum for a while. He's in a different spot for a while. He's moving all around. It's this big geographical story. John chapter 14 through 16, he's basically in one spot. Then John 17 moves on, continues that trend, and this entire chapter, which basically is its own section of John, is an intimate prayer. It's the final prayer that Jesus prays uh, before his uh, arrest. This is an intimate conversation with Jesus and God. So uh, prayer in the New Testament is a couple things, and it's, it's tough for us to see this. Sometimes when we come to the text, we don't necessarily uh, see it right off the bat because we bring our 21st century American Christian life to the text. Um, we, we live in a culture today where uh, religion and especially prayer is highly personalized. You know, when we talk about going to pray alone, we're talk, you know, we do our quiet time. You know, you get up every morning or whatever, and, and 15 minutes you lock yourself in a closet by yourself and read the Bible and spend time in the Word. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's an idea that would be completely foreign to the biblical audience. They would have no concept of that. And to this, even today, outside of Western culture in places like Indonesia, Christians today still have no concept of that. When they go alone to pray, it means they grab four or five of their best friends and they all go pray out loud together. Um, so that's, that's kind of what's going on here. And, and the reason we br- I bring that up is not to just, you know, talk about things that are different for different sake, but the idea that uh, whenever we see Jesus pray, on top of meeting immediate concerns, which he certainly is doing, that these are real legitimate prayers, that these are real petitions that, God, that Jesus is sending to God, these are real um, you know, conversations between Christ and his Father, they're also teaching lessons because he's intending for people to overhear him. In this case, it's a small group of people. It's his disciples. The crowds are gone. They've abandoned Jesus by this point because um, he started to kind of make clear who he is. But uh, Jesus is, whenever he prays out loud, it's, it's intended to hear so that we learn how to relate to the Father through Jesus. I mean, that's what the incarnation is, right? How do we know the Father? I mean, Jesus said it himself in these verses, because they've seen me and I know you. So whenever Jesus prays, he's teaching us not only who he is, but how to relate to the Father, how to pray ourselves. And he's also addressing things he actually cares about because he's praying. Um, so uh, this is, like I say, this is different than our kind of modern idea of prayer. And the other thing that we can take away from this, just kind of as a side note, not that this isn't central to the message or anything, but it shows us that this prayer and other prayers of Jesus have basis in Jesus' actual words, Right? That's one thing that's kind of confusing. We as Christians may not bring this country up, but or country, wow. We as Christians may not bring this question up, but skeptics would go, well, if Jesus went off to pray, how the heck do they know what he prayed? Because they, Jesus didn't pray like we do today. Jesus didn't go lock himself in a closet. Jesus prayed in front of his disciples. Now, that, like I say, that's just an ancillary point. That's a cultural point. That's not what this message is about. But the idea is not that, that John, you know, wrote this prayer himself as a, you know, part to fit into his greater theology in the book, although certainly, uh, you know, the language, the way that he crafts it and the framework and stuff like that, John has, uh, you know, a message that he's trying to get at here, but the idea is that this prayer is certainly rooted in actual words of Jesus that John would have heard, would have heard and could have written down. Um, so, uh, so there's kind of just the context. So now let's move on into the smaller context. Like I said, John chapter 17 kind of is its own section of John. Um, so we'll move into, you know, we've just read the last six verses. Chapter 17 is a really long chapter. We're not going to sit here and read it all. 
Uh, but it breaks down basically into three sections. So first, Jesus prays for himself chapter and verses 1 through 5. There's a ton to learn from that. That's not what we're talking about today. Next, Jesus prays for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. There's a ton to learn from that. That's not what we're talking about today. What we're looking at is when Jesus prays for all believers, verses chap, uh, that's verses 20 through 26 that we read earlier. Uh, this is all believers everywhere geographically and throughout time chron- chronologically. Um, and the reason why it's really important that we draw that distinction between verses 6 and 19 and verses 20 and 26, between when Jesus prays for the disciples and when Jesus prays for believers, for the church, is because this is a very rare, if not unique, section of Scripture. This happens almost nowhere else, where there is no, just in terms of, so obviously there's an audience that John's writing to, but if we look at the actual characters in what John's writing, we look at Jesus as a character, there is no audience that he's addressing here, right? When he prays, whenever, especially in John's, you know, those first few chapters, one through, uh, uh, one through um, 13, uh, you know, whenever we are in, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or in Acts, in, in anything in Scripture where there's a story being told, right, every time we take the words of Jesus, he's talking to someone, right? All the, whenever Jesus says, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever loved him, uh, whoever loves him and believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He's talking to a person who just asked him a question, right? Like he's not just pontificating. You know, we, we tend to lose that because we, we take verses and we write down verses and that's, you know, that's fine. That's, that's what we have to do sometimes as people to tend to memorize things. But that there, there's a setting, there's people he's addressing, and that he's answering a direct question and that there's layers of meaning, right? So whenever Jesus, is answer, whenever Jesus answers questions, whenever Paul writes instructions, we believe as Christians that there are timeless truths all throughout Scripture that apply to us and to every other Christian throughout the world, throughout time. But we have to understand that what that means to us doesn't override the initial question. So Paul may be addressing an issue that's actually happening in a church at Corinth or at Philippi. Jesus is actually answering the Syrophoenician woman whenever he answers her question and uh, whenever she actually challenges him and kind of wins the argument. And so there's truth that we get out of that, but there's an immediate first meaning to that. This passage doesn't so much have that. And the reason being because the church doesn't exist yet. This is why we split this off from the disciples. Jesus is praying for a group of people that don't even exist yet. And it's uh, the other thing that's incredibly important to take away from that is that this is Jesus' last act as a free man, at least in John's gospel. Like I say, you turn the page, Jesus gets captured, goes to his kangaroo court trial, gets murdered on the cross, and we all know the rest of the story. In John's gospel, the last thing Jesus does is pray for a group of people that don't exist yet. He spends his last moments on earth. He could have spent them with his friends and loved ones, could have gone and hung out with Mary and Joseph if Joseph's still around at this point. We don't really know. We know Mary is. Um, could have gone and hit that resort town on the other side of the Sea of Galilee that he never got the chance to go visit. You, know, you name it, there's tons of other things he could have done. He spends his last, I don't want to say his last free act, because certainly he was free to, <laughs> to either step down off the cross or to avoid the trial in, you know, in general, but at least his last act as a free man, he spends advocating on behalf of the church and praying that the church will become what he lived and died to make it. 
And that's a commitment that, um, that I think we need to both appreciate and understand as well as, as understand that that's what he's called us to do. And we'll get into that more as we move on out of context and move on now into application. So uh, there's going to be, just like, uh, not to compare myself to, to John the Evangelist, but there's going to be a lot of repetition of things I've already said here, uh, just because can't, you can't preach John without preaching like John. Um, and so what we see here is that unity and mission are so intertwined with one another that without one, the other doesn't exist. And like I said earlier, without unity and mission, arguably the church doesn't exist. And if we're getting together every Sunday, if we've, if we've got a body and a building, One, two, testing, one, two. I'm back on, back on. All right, awesome. So <laughs> now we're going to really have some repetition because I don't remember where I left off. Um, so, yeah, so unity and mission are so intertwined that without one, the other doesn't exist. If we are the church and we are a church without unity, without mission, then we may or may not be the church. We may just be a bunch of people who get together and sing some songs every week. Um, There's lots of other organizations that do that that aren't the church. It's not unheard of to suggest that. Um, So uh, we want to build off on the thing that I think we as evangelical Christians, which are kind of what we in the valley, that's the little group we fall under. The the thing that, that we are pretty good at understanding is that a personal connection with God is obviously part of being a Christian, right? That's that's. We talk about that every week, you know, that having a personal relationship with Jesus, knowing him as Lord and Savior, all that fantastic stuff. That's all obviously part of being a Christian. We see that in verses uh, 22 and 26. Well, we see it in the whole section, the fact that the Son of God, who we believe to be God himself, is praying to himself, to the Father at this point. We get the idea that, that being a Christian is not just a status, you know. It's not something that we sign up for and then a category that we fall into for the rest of our lives. It's an active conversation that has to happen every day. If God had to do it with himself, then we certainly have to do it with God. Um, So we see that bigger there, and and Christ explicitly says it in verse 22 and 26. He prays that we would be one with God the Father and one with Christ, just as God the Father and Christ are one. If that's not a personal, you know, experience or a personal connection with God, then I don't know what it is. But then what we have to take away from every other word in these verses is that that's not all that it is. If uh, we're willing to, you know, to instance, uh, uh, this is, we've all grown up to it. This is, again, another kind of uh, byproduct of our culture. So we're a very market-driven, consumer-driven culture. We tend to treat church the same way. Um, you know, we, we go looking for the church that fits our style, that fits our needs, and all that good stuff. The thing is, if we're willing to hop from church to church week in and week out in order to get spiritually fed, then what mission are we advancing? What greater goal is there in our faith other than feeding ourselves? That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is calling for in these verses. It certainly doesn't seem to be what Jesus lived and died for. Um, but then again, uh, it, how it, it's hard to draw one line, you know, to see where unity and mission uh, kind of blur the lines between one another. Is, is if that's, our, you know, not only is there a lack of mission, but what, but what unity is there? Are we united to the same degree that Christ and the Father and the Spirit are united if, we will, if we're willing to hop around and 
you know, to shop, to church shop and everything like that. There, there's no unity. There's no mission there. And, that, and uh, unfortunately, the way that a lot of us were kind of brought up, myself included, and how we went about doing church. Uh, and the other thing to, to come on, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be overly gruff here, but just, a, a, you know, kind of a statement of fact. The nice thing about being a, a fill-in preacher is you don't have to worry about if somebody gets mad at you because they know you're not up there next week and they'll come back anyway. Um, so, uh, so the thing that, <laughs> that uh, uh, the other thing that we can kind of take away from this and, and hopefully apply to our life is the idea that if we're on top of there being no mission and no unity, on top of the fact that, that without mission or unity, we're probably not even the church, is we see what, what we are looking for whenever we treat church that way, whenever we treat Christ that way. If we're just coming to church, you know, to get our fix, to get our spiritual fix that week, or to get fed, whatever phrase, you know, that we've all heard that you want to use, then basically what we're looking for, and this, this applies to our quiet time, it applies to the, you know, music we listen to to get that spiritual fill up, all those things, basically what we're looking for is a self-help book. And quite frankly, the homeless guy with no wife and kids who was laughed out of his hometown, betrayed by his friends, and turned over to a foreign power to face the death penalty is probably not the guy who wrote the self-help book you want to read. That's not typically what we think of in terms of self-help authors, in terms of qualifications. Um, and so that moves on to, uh, to what we see, to what we mentioned earlier uh, there in the, about um, how Christ spends his last free act is this idea of commitment. Now, just like I mentioned earlier with the idea of, of commitment and unity you know, and, the, and contrasting what God calls for us with the Pax Romana, you know, God's not calling for, for unity by the sword. He's not wanting us to go out and kill Christians who are breaking off or, or leaving the church. You know, somebody uh, misses a Sunday, we're not out there, you know, we're not trying to, to coerce them. The same thing is true here, that whenever we talk about commitment to the church, we're not getting into, you know, what you see uh, in a lot of, probably some of us has experienced in churches, certainly you see in a lot of cults and you hear horror stories about it, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, we're not talking about giving someone control over our lives, saying you have to be here, or we're going to kick you out, blah, blah, blah. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this commitment, just like the commitment of Christ, that flows out of the unity, of sharing in the unity and mission of Christ. Uh, just the idea that if we are united together as Christ seems to want us to be, and we're united with God and Christ as Christ wants us to be, then we will care about and, and act on the same things that he cared about and acted on. And like we said, his last free act on earth was spent advocating on behalf of the church. So it seems like we have uh, that the commission that flows out of, the commitment that flows out of that is a commitment to the body of Christ, to the bride of Christ, to the church. Again, we're not talking about legalism here. We're not talking about coercion. We are talking about being made into the image of God and caring about what God cares about. Um, so, uh, so the question that, uh, that we'll end with today that we need to kind of ask ourselves going forward, week in and week out, uh, whether it's our last act as it was Christ or if it's the first of many acts to come, is how serious do we take our commission, our commitment to that same church? Keep in mind, the church that we are a part of today is the same church that Christ is praying for there in the garden in John 17. That right now, this body of believers, not just the valley, but the church, period, whether that's Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, 
whether it's other Baptist churches, whether it's Friendship Baptist or First Baptist Church that we have a relationship with back in Stuttgart, whether it's the Valley, whether it's your home group, doesn't matter how small or how big you want to get, that's the same church that Christ is praying for, that he's spending his last free act on earth worrying about. Um, So if we're to believe that, that Christ desires for us to be one with him and one with one another, even to the same degree that Christ is one with the Father, then if our commitment to that church is nothing, have we truly committed ourselves to Christ? The idea, you know, it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. We sing, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Thing is, that's true, but we have to let Christ define that. That doesn't mean I got Jesus and that's all I need. That means I've got Jesus, so what Christ wanted, what Christ needed, is what I want and what I need. And Christ makes that very clear there in John 17, 20 through 26, that that's not only a personal relationship with him, but that that is a missional, united, committed experience with the church. Um, How seriously do we, so if that's our commitment to Christ is a commitment to church, how seriously do we take our commitment to Christ? How seriously do we take our commitment to the church? And how seriously do we take our commitment to the valley? Y'all please uh, join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you uh, so much for, um, for not only uh, taking on flesh and dying for us, but for living for us as well. And uh, uh, for saying the words that, that we needed to hear, as well as doing the things that we needed to see you do. Um, please continue to, to form us, to be a people more of your image, to grow us into the, uh, the same unity with one another that you have with yourself and into the same unity with you that Christ had with you during his life on earth. Uh, We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.